Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. Good morning, Crosslink. Thank you, Scott Band, for leading us in worship this morning. It's a privilege uh, to, to see you all uh, up here and have the opportunity uh, to share God's word uh, with you this morning. We reflect back on the songs uh, that we just sang. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We have a holy trust in Jesus' name where we are made strong in him because he is our foundation and cornerstone. <clears throat> Pastor Matthew uh, made mention uh, last time that uh, there's, there's a lot of work uh, that goes into uh, preparation uh, for details behind the scenes, of which I'm a large part of um, in my uh, usual role, and uh, making sure that, that things happen, just like with uh, baptistry, he referred to that. Uh, we got to celebrate uh, 12 people going public uh, in their faith with Jesus uh, last Sunday um, because of the, the details and things uh, that were set up. But there's, there's something else uh, that a lot of work and thought uh, goes into. And I just so appreciate uh, Pastor Scott's uh, prayer and care uh, for composing uh, the worship set uh, that we get to enjoy singing uh, each and every Sunday. The entire worship set this morning, I don't know if you uh, noticed, but is one that beautifully set the stage for where our focus needs to be in the uncertain time uh, in which we live. Uh, Pastor Scott uh, prayed and, and thought and put that together uh, so that we could sing some songs that, that draw our hearts to the Lord uh, along the lines of a particular theme, and I always appreciate how he does that. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. Jesus also said that upon this rock himself, the Christ, the Son of the living God, he will build his church. Matthew 16, 16, and the forces of hell will not overcome it. As a church, Crosslink Community Church, we just concluded a sermon series where Pastor Matthew has led us through a challenge to understand and ultimately respond to our commitment to the church. It was a call to commit to the church. In our troubled and distracted culture, it is easy to grow complacent or even compromise in this call. The church faces the conundrum of an ever-growing aggression and even rejection towards God's word and the integrity and the ability of the church to stand strong on its mission for being a light to the world. However, the most serious of attacks is not from the political front nor from the worldly, humanistic uh, desires of our culture. Church, we should not be surprised when the world acts like the world. We shouldn't. We tend to get ourselves all riled up, though, at the world, pressing back sometimes, and unfortunately with an attack of judgment of our own, and it is often self-defeating. Yes, we should stand strong in the face of the evils we see today. But let's first make sure our strong stance as the church is firmly rooted and grounded upon God's word. For in fact, the diluting, the dulling of God's word in the church today is the greatest attack we face. While we are distracted battling the world when we should be reaching the world, the enemy is slipping in by an attack within. The calling to commit to the church is a clear commitment, is a clear commitment to the call of holding fast to God's word. 2 Timothy 2 verse 7 says, Paul is speaking and says, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. 
Matthew 24, verse 35 says, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In Psalm 34, verse 4, 33, verse 4, David wrote, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. In 1 Peter 1, verse 25, the apostle quotes a certain prophet when he says, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. The word of God is spirit and invisible. Out of the spiritual comes the physical. This only happens by the authority of the word of God. God has always sought to communicate with man using many different means of speaking to us in order to remind us of our capacity and our identity in the context of his divine majesty. He speaks through many different ways to get our attention, to call us to him. He speaks through creation, like the psalmist shares. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In Psalm 19, since the beginning of time, the Lord has been preaching to us, through his word. No one can maintain a deaf ear forever, for long. God speaks to us through his creative, perfect, and eternal creation and plan. Think for just a moment of some of the ways in, in creation uh, that God, God speaks to you, where you just have one of those God moments of appreciation uh, when we're taking a look at the created world around us. Perhaps it's the splendor of a sunset or a sunrise like we experienced this morning, for those of you that were up uh, that early for it. The radiance of a rainbow through the majesty of the mountains, which we get to enjoy here, through the first breath of a newborn baby, through the challenge of circumstances, through the cry of catastrophe, through the darkness of despair, through the voice of victory, the reality of redemption, and the sweet savor of salvation, God speaks. God said, 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 God said. From the third verse in the Bible, 11 times in the first chapter of the story, we have a God that speaks. He talks. Do we listen? An overarching question I believe the Lord has for us today is, do you hear me? Do we hear the Lord? The writer to the Hebrews begins his epistle by saying, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2. Thanks to the humble and called men who wrote it, the entire Bible was established by God-breathed inspiration. It was through their lives of faith that they received the revelation of the word of God. What these men were used to write by God would become a spiritual guide for every generation to come, for us today. If we removed the word faith from the Bible, it wouldn't have the same value whatsoever. What makes this, the Bible, different from every other book is the presence of faith. Faith in the Father, faith in the Son, through the complete personality of God has been manifested through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Jesus is God's word made flesh. This is why John said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Many, many years ago, the famous atheist Voltaire claimed that within a hundred years, not even one copy of the Bible would be found in men's hands. For many years, the Geneva Bible Society used the same printing press that Voltaire used for his books, one of which printed the aforementioned prophecy. Today, the Bible is available throughout the entire world, with an estimated 400 million copies in circulation, homes in the civilized world without a copy or without familiarity with one are rare. The book of God in full or in part has been translated into more than a thousand languages and dialects so that soon, and I wonder, perhaps in our lifetime, unless the Lord tarries, every nation under heaven can know the love of God in Christ through his word, through the means of technology and media and communication that we have today, it's possible. Each book of the Bible has its own God-ordained and inerrant purpose. The book of Isaiah, written fully by the prophet Isaiah, is one of those books that stands out in many different ways across the Old and New Testament. I say fully because in studying Isaiah, we do find that there has been some critical debate uh, in, on the integrity uh, and consistency of the book by a single author. But the critical analysis is not uh, conservative nor consistent with biblical interpretation. As we look at Isaiah influence across the entire Bible, we find it quoted frequently by other prophets, by apostles, uh, by Jesus himself. Isaiah uh, assumed a role of particular importance in biblical interpretation. The book of Isaiah offers both judgment and justice. It proclaims consequence and comfort. Speaks to us today a message of promise and peace in the face of cultural difficulty and the schemes of the enemy performed in the sin of man. Throughout Isaiah's ministry, he preached God's righteousness warned on the judgment of sin and comforted his people with the knowledge and reminder of God's love, his longing to forgive, and all the glories in store for those who remained faithful to him. We need to take a quick dive into some background in Isaiah to, to paint a backdrop for our place in Scripture this morning. Where our look into Isaiah today begins is a little bit more than halfway through the very long book. The first 39 chapters focuses on the period in Israelite history uh, that uh, the Israelites experienced um, where Assyria, uh, the, the power on uh, the nation of Assyria, dominated uh, the region. Isaiah experienced that. The rest of the book uh, addresses the prophetic exile uh, in Babylon, to the point of even forecasting the Israelites' future release and the comfort that would come from that. We see Isaiah proclaim in chapter 40, where we will find our text today, proclaim the dominion and enduring faithfulness of God. Whereas the, the first 39 chapters is on God's majesty and the messianic kingship that, uh, that Christ will bring, that the coming Christ will bring, beginning in chapter 40, there's a shift. There's a shift to his work as comforter and restorer of his people. Isaiah, who was a resident of Jerusalem, began his prophetic ministry in the year King Uzziah died. We see that uh, in 740 BC in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Many of us are familiar with that passage. It's very common. And his ministry is recorded as continuing through the reigns of kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. I tell you that basically because Isaiah and his contemporaries saw it all, the evil and the good. It's easy to think that we are living in the worst spiritual age, moral compromise, corruption, confusion there has ever been. And while those things may be evident, 
Isaiah saw it first. We are experiencing but variations on the same theme in our lives today, in our world today. Church, it's called sin. And it comes with many faces and forms throughout the ages. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. That was quite the indictment and description. Isaiah's favorite designation or description of God we find in this more than 25 references to God as the Holy One of Israel throughout the book. From God's establishment of, a, of Israel as a nation all the way through the period of the judges and up to this point in time in Isaiah, God's command to his people was be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. Isaiah uses this name uh, for God as a reminder it was a tall order, just as it is for us. And we cannot hope to succeed in becoming more holy or more like God apart from Jesus Christ. God's holiness meant that he would be faithful to his own promises. Isaiah's concern to present God as both the Holy One of Israel and her savior and redeemer presents to us a profound tension because there's this justice and righteousness, but then also love and mercy. There's this expectation and then there's this deliverance. We see that, that God is on the verge of destroying his people because of their sin. Yet the remnant theme that we find in Isaiah, a faithful remnant speaks equally well of divine grace and mercy. God is a God of comfort and love, of redemption and deliverance for his people. Today, we can readily understand how the New Testament writers were following the lead of Isaiah himself. Jesus is the saving one who brought about a way for redemption and deliverance to all who believe. Jesus is the culmination and conclusion, the chief character in Isaiah, a servant and Lord, Savior and Redeemer, who fulfilled the prophecy of the Old Testament and the hope of all for today. Yet, Isaiah's description of Israel's God was a radical contrast to the thinking of pagan Mesopotamia, among whom the exiles lived. The gods of those nations, man-made, lied, schemed, seduced, deceived, and made war on one another. It's no surprise, man made them up. They were caught up in all the depravity and uncertainty of life apart from the one true God. If we step outside of history and back into our present here today, well, we can see things haven't changed all that much. The New Testament quotes Isaiah more than all the other prophets together and does so in such a way to leave no room for doubt that the New Testament writers and Jesus, Lord Jesus himself, took Isaiah to not only be the author of the whole book that bears his name, but to assert the book's relevancy in the establishment of Jesus as the Christ, the saving one. The New Testament appealed to Isaiah repeatedly to explain the events of their own day. We can draw application, very needed reminders, as well to committing to the call. What call? What is this call? That's the title of the message today. We will answer this as we explore the passage. As we do, we can't overstate the importance of how Isaiah, in both Old and New Testaments, points us to Jesus and the vital importance of God's word being authentic and true, absolute and trustworthy. We will note in verse 3, uh, here in a few moments, that John the Baptist was the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing a way for the coming glory of the Lord. We cross-reference that to Matthew 3, Luke 3, and John 1. 
Isaiah spoke of the virgin birth of Jesus in the famous passage, chapter 7, verse 14, seen come to pass in Matthew and Luke. The unyielding stubbornness of Isaiah's generation relates to many illustrations Jesus taught in the New Testament parables, and they relate to us today. Looking beyond the Gospels, we find numerous Isaiah references in both Acts and Romans as well. The Apostle Paul appeals to Isaiah both to explain uh, the incorporation of the Gentiles into the people of God and to proclaim the remnant of the faithful for Israel. Other references include Jesus described as a suffering servant, warnings against hypocritical practices. We see a quote in the book of James and even the awesome parallel of divine armor as seen in Isaiah chapter 59 and Ephesians 6, the well-known armor of God chapter. Did you know that? The armor of God chapter connects back to an Isaiah reference in chapter 59. The book of Isaiah and our text this morning has great bearing on our beliefs and our behaviors today. If you are physically able, please stand for the reading of God's word. You can take a look at the screen or turn in your own personal copy of God's word. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And may God bless the reading and application of, our, of the word today. You may be seated. A central theme of this chapter is the proclamation of the glory of God for salvation of dying sinners. God is great, infinitely so, whether sinful humanity recognizes it or not. But the grace of God is unleashed into this sin-cursed and dying world specifically in this way. The eternal word of God proclaimed to sinners on the very subject of the glory of God. As sinners hear and believe the message, we are forgiven, comforted, and strengthened. And that message, the glory of God, is Jesus Christ. This opening part of chapter 40 is like the overture of a great musical composition. All of the major themes in the following chapters in Isaiah develop their themes out of these several verses. Atonement, the way of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the power of the word, all find their motif here. The great oratorio, Handel's Messiah, has its beginning based here in Scripture. At the mention of this great work, though, you can probably just hear the melody that we're familiar with, the Hallelujah Chorus, perhaps its most well-known segment. Some of you are disappointed. <laughs> We're all familiar with that. We've heard it before. Some of us have sung it. In fact, I saw a few of you start to budge. You were unsure whether uh, or not to stand up, Miss Robin, <laughs> because you hear this uh, song, and we know the royal tradition of, of rising and standing to, to sing the Hallelujah Chorus, the, the conclusion of Handel's Messiah. But... There's quite a bit more to Handel's Messiah. Uh, it's rather long, um, kind of like one of Pastor Matthew's sermons. Um, <laughs> earlier on the great opus, uh, we find this. Comfort ye, 
figured I would play uh, an excerpt from uh, that segment of Handel's Messiah rather than try to sing it. You wouldn't want that. Whoever that was did a much better job. The first verse in our chapter says, God sends us comfort for our good and his glory. The rendition of Handel's Messiah is how I imagine this verse to have been spoken. A vague voice exhorts someone, Isaiah initially, to give words of divine comfort, compassion to God's people. The repetition of the same verb, uh, comfort is, is a verb there, gives a sense of urgency. There is a desperate and vital need for us to have comfort from God. In other passages in Isaiah, God's comfort is associated with a time of great joy, of restoration, of redemption. The audience, in this case, us, can receive comfort from God because your God, not a lowercase God, not a friend, not a neighbor, not a counselor, but God Almighty, the Holy One, has definite, definitive plans to act in a compassionate way towards those he calls his. There's a connection here of your God to my people, employing covenantal language that reflects God's relationship to his people. We understand having the entirety of context here, having the New Testament and the church and Jesus Christ come, we have that context that something terrible had happened and was happening to God's people who need comfort. They just didn't know how it was going to come yet. It was going to come ultimately in the form of Jesus. Without any transition or preparation, God's command is clear and offers a tone of kindness and gentleness as opposed to the previous indictments of God's scornful judgment for his people's sin. These opening words, this first verse, are words of such a sincere nature. It is as if they were spoken to someone who is grieving over the death of a family member. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. There's a lot of comfort in that passage because God has a lot of comfort to offer for those who belong to him. God wants us to know. God wants us to know that even when we go through difficult trials and challenging times, he is in all ways, always present and always loves us. No matter the personal scale, setting, or severity, be it discipline for sin, be it an attack of the enemy, be it affliction for our enemies that offers refining fire to turn our faces toward God, God never abandons nor forsakens us. The first thing God communicates as a reminder is to comfort his people. We need not fret nor fear the things we face when our God is in control. And we know he always is. Warren Wearsby put it this way, when it seems as if God is far away, remind yourself that he is near. Nearness is not a matter of geography. God is everywhere. This reality may speak to us in different ways. Some of you may have recently lost a loved one, lost a job, lost a relationship with someone due to an offense, due to a betrayal. It speaks to us as a church in the face of so many controversies within the big church, denominations, and even in our own government. There is a comfort that only God can provide, and he is faithful to provide it in the midst of any circumstance. The key is trusting him. The prophet Nahum, whose name means compassion, draws reference to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, when he said, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. 
And just what is Jesus referring to in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's right. The same truth which God is conveying here. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. In the next verse, we see that God gives us a challenge for greater things. In Christ, we have victory. In Christ, we have victory. And in faith through him, do we have a hope for the future? Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, Paul declares, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is a reminder to us that God's glory and the pursuit of a life that is becoming more like Christ is our ultimate goal. God is calling out to us individually and corporately to turn to him, to turn to him, to trust in him, to worship him, to rely on him. Romans 11 verse 36 says, For him and through him and to him are all things. In this truth, God has greater things for us than where we have been. For the Israelites, this was a place of rebellion and separation from God and his promises. Some of us have been there too. Perhaps some are now. Even for us as a church, Crosslink, God has greater things in store. Greater things is the theme and name of our ongoing mission and accompanying giving challenge for missions, stewardship, and much-needed facility expansion. We call it that because by God's grace alone, God's grace alone, we as Crosslink Community Church are not where we once were. God has done a great redemptive work in the life of this church over the last 10 years. And so rightfully and responsibly, we should strive towards the greater things that God has planned. That is the call, that is the charge here in this verse, that there are greater things. Trust, there are greater things. Taking a look at the verse, we see that God removed the Israelites' iniquity. Christ has made the removal of iniquity possible for us. When we repent of our sins and stop holding on to the things of this world, well, God has greater things in store for us. I don't mean an easy life. I don't mean wealth. I don't mean wonder without worry. When God uses us according to his plan for our life, that is when we can have an expectation of greater things than before. God speaks an encouragement to his people. The admonishing, affectionate, and even congratulatory tone of the words in this verse establish an idea of someone who is paralyzed by circumstances and given new life and freedom. The comfort that God offers is not some sort of repayment for Israel's unjust suffering, but rather it is the result of unmerited forgiveness. Israel has suffered immensely for her sins, but now is being made incomplete. There's an expectation of completeness in the future. There is no more fear. We might think that we have much to fear in this life of trial and turmoil. Yet we know that this life is but temporary. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 through 18 says this, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Greater things. God provides criteria for his goal. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. 
Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Again, we are introduced to a voice calling out with a message for the ages. This passage of Isaiah is one with direct fulfillment in New Testament in the person and ministry of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. The voice declares a message that has been there since the dawn of time, present for all eternity, waiting. Nevertheless, the messenger is not so important as the message. Scholars believe that this literary expression is intentional. We do not know the person of the voice, but we know the purpose and promise the voice brings. There's clear instruction here. The purpose declared by the voice needs a path in which to come. Prophetically, God made this path ready for the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to enter into the world. The process of preparation is described as using the analogy of a royal edict to repair and prepare uh, the roads because a great emperor would soon be coming through, will soon approach. And so we've got to get everything ready. The audience is exhorted to prepare the way and make straight a highway for God by leveling out the, the high and low sections and smoothing out the rough spots. Ever driven on I-81? What about up into Pennsylvania? In my experience, uh, those sections of 81 are some of the worst roads, perpetually under construction, too. What really is going on there? Must be quite an expectation they have. Got to get it just perfect, maybe? Well, there's a long way to go, right? What about parts of 85 in North Carolina? They're the same way. You have to literally drive in the left lane to avoid miles of rough patch on the right-hand side. What is that about? I actually don't really know because I just drive in the left lane anyway, so don't really know what it's like. It's a good thing Jesus already came into the world, um, or else if it was up to those roads, we would still be waiting for the Messiah. This exhortation in this verse here should not be understood literally because no one would think God would be hindered by physical obstacles. Although getting through traffic on 81 still might present a problem. What do these verses mean for us in application? What do they mean? What do we take away here? Well, the New Testament describes the way to God as a narrow gate. It describes the walk of a believer as a straight path. There can't be hindrances. For when there are, Jesus is not well reflected in us, is he? We are instructed to fill in the potholes in our life. Have others in our life come alongside with a, with a greater. Edge off the rough spots. Smooth them down. Smoothing out the rough edges. Sometimes we even need to call in an excavator for the hard work. This is called discipleship. This is called growing in sanctification. Uh, this is called building each other up uh, in the body of Christ and, and sharpening each other, uh, growing together in God's word. That's that picture uh, there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 12 through 13 give us this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. When we as believers run a crooked, unsteady path filled with obstacles, it's not very easy to run our race well, let alone make a clear way for others to come to the Lord. We are, in fact, hindrances and even obstacles ourselves when we are not living according to God's word and his will for our lives. Sadly, some of our lives look to be in about the similar shape of our roadways. Imagine what the world must think trying to travel with us. What are all these cones for? I hate cones. They make me not go fast. 
The sign says, Christian under repair, be prepared for delays. Detour this way, Christian down. The road isn't smooth, the road isn't clear. God does not give us everything we want, but he does fulfill his promises, leading us along the best and straightest paths to himself. Proverbs 4, verse 26 through 27, watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn from the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil and our way will be made clear and the road will be cleared and Jesus will be able to work through us in the lives of others in a powerful way. Verse five, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God reveals conviction for his glory. When the road is made ready and the way is cleared, his glory will be revealed. We know the glory of the Lord has been revealed through Jesus. The display of God's glory is nowhere greater than the cross of Christ. There we see all the attributes of God radiantly displayed. His love, mercy, grace, wisdom, power, wrath, justice, patience, and providence. All flesh will see it together. Whereas verses 3 and 4 are more general in interpretation, this verse, on the other hand, is quite literal and invokes a prophetic promise. The direct result of the Lord's coming will be the revelation of his glory. There is a call to recognize God's glory. The glory of the Lord is not only to be recognized by Jerusalem or by Judah, but to every prepared heart. This is one of the outstanding concepts in the book of Isaiah. Words for glory occur 37 times, 20 in chapters 1 through 39, and 17 more in the remaining chapters, five of those in the final chapter. The glory of God is the manifestation of his absolute reality. The great sin of humanity is our attempt to take God's glory and relegate that to ourselves without submitting to him. John Piper is well known for this definition on our created purpose. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we are not satisfied in God alone, we try to replace our devotion on things that will never truly satisfy. One day, the whole world will recognize that God alone is. Who has performed and accomplished it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. God makes a call for obedience to his plan. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. In just a second, hopefully, we are going to have a little fun. You are about to hear a selection of quick sound bites from various sources of media entertainment. Some will be immediately recognizable. Some familiar, but uh, not as easily connected with, might recognize part of it. A few may be very well known and loved by some, but not as common to everyone. Let's listen. I am your father. Some of you just got way too excited about hearing Darth Vader's voice in a church service. At the end of the service, there'll be an opportunity to repent right here at the stage. Seriously, I debated on, on that clip. I knew everyone would recognize it. It's a good thing the, the Baylor family is not uh, sitting up here in front, or there might be a lightsaber duel uh, taking place on the floor right now. I have to call the gatekeepers in, but we recognize that voice. We recognize James Earl Jones. Next one. Houston, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. That is from the movie Apollo 13. We may not have known that upon hearing it, but we say that phrase all the time. Houston, we have a problem. Of course, we know that that was actually you know, a real statement that was said um, by the astronauts, and so that movie depicts that, but we use it as a phrase because it connects with us. We can say that phrase a lot today. Next one. There's a peace that's only to be found on the other side of war. If that battle must come, I will fight it. Now, 
Everyone my age or older might recognize that voice, Sean Connery. Movie, perhaps not so much. It's one of my favorites, First Night, where Sean Connery portrays King Arthur. Next one. Every man dies. No, every man really lives. Every man dies. Not every man really lives. Braveheart. Mel Gibson. Some of us recognized it, some of us didn't. Hearing that quote makes me want to get my sword. Ben, could you run and get it out of my office, please? No, don't do that, actually. Next one. Do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. Where is that from? Narnia. Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Of course, that was Aslan's voice by Liam Neeson. I thought of another Liam Neeson quote uh, that is well quoted from another one of his uh, movies, but I couldn't find an appropriate way to uh, share that in church, so I went the Narnia route. This last, uh, this last clip is going to be well known to the staff. In fact, in fact, I might see a few cringes in the room, um, or even a few of the deacons. They might uh, jump up ready to do something or roll their eyes, depending on how spiritual they are. So let's play this last one. Make it so. Make it so, number one. Make it so, Mr. Crusher. Make it so, Data. Make it so, Mr. Crusher. Well, make it so, number one. Make it so, Mr. Wolf. Ensign Crusher, prepare to make it so. Then make it so. Make it so, Lieutenant. Make it so. 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 There's a whole lot of make-it-sos. Uh, that, that phrase uh, I might be known for saying um, when we're talking in, in staff uh, situations and, and around the office and things like that, but it's gotten to the point where the staff has started to say it in anticipation of what I'm about to, to say or ask them to do or something like that. And so in a mocking way, I'm sure, uh, they say, I'll go make it so. Obviously, those last two speak to me. I connect with those. When we hear these types of voices, media icons that resonate with us, or even when we hear certain theme music, we have a natural response of some sort. The response may be excitement, it may be nostalgia, it may be fear, frustration, or it may be funny. But whatever the feeling the voices generate, we associate them with the ideas or characters, and they stick with us. We recognize them without even seeing the source. Do we recognize God's voice? Are we in his word enough to know it? When God speaks, do we recognize it? Do we even hear? The great Oswald Chambers reflects on our response to the call of God. God did not direct his call to Isaiah. Isaiah overheard God saying, who will go for us? The call of God is not just for a select few, but for everyone. Whether I hear God's call or not depends on the condition of my ears, and exactly what I hear depends on my spiritual attitude. Many are called, but few are chosen. That is, few prove that they are the chosen ones. The chosen ones are those who have come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and have had their spiritual condition changed and their ears opened. Then they hear the voice of the Lord, continually asking, who will go for us? However, God doesn't single out someone and say, now you go. He did not force his will on Isaiah. Isaiah was in the presence of God, and he overheard the call. His response, performed in complete freedom, could only be to say, here I am, send me. Remove the thought from your mind of expecting God to come to force you or to plead with you. When, the Lord, when our Lord called his disciples, he did it without irresistible pressure from the outside, the quiet yet passionate insistence of his follow me. Follow me was spoken to the men whose every sense was receptive. If we will allow the Holy Spirit to bring us face to face with God, we too will hear what Isaiah heard, the voice of the Lord in perfect freedom. We too will say, here I am, send me. Jesus reveals himself in me. And I serve him in the ordinary ways of life out of devotion to him. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 16, Paul declares, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. 
Jesus never lays down the conditions of discipleship as conditions of salvation. We are simply called to lift up Jesus Christ. Paul states over and over that the call of God is to preach the gospel. But remember what Paul means by the gospel. The reality of redemption in our Lord Jesus Christ. When we commit to the call as we see here in Isaiah, we make a commitment to the call of the gospel. When it comes to our response as believers to respond to the call, Christ gives us, C.S. Lewis summed it up with this obvious yet profound subtlety. The real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice letting that other, larger, stronger life come flowing in, come flowing in, and so on all day. Are we at a place where we truly hear the call God makes on our lives? Can we not respond because we are not even listening? Your potential is the sum of all the possibilities God has for your life. Verses 7 through 8, God promises that his word stands forever. These last two verses repeat the points made previously and drives them home in a powerful final statement. The spirit that breathes out destruction for all human pride is the same spirit who speaks the eternal word of life over all withered and faded human hopes and circumstances. A theme presented in the early chapters of Isaiah is that if I am insi- if I insist I am permanent, then I become nothing. If I admit that God alone is permanent, then he breathes permanence on me. It is God that is permanent and enduring, timeless and eternal. God's word has endured and will continue to endure despite the attacks against it even today. God said it, his word will stand forever. We have nothing to fear. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God is tested, tried, and purified. He is a shield to those who would take refuge in him. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We see what Psalm 19 has to say to us about what God's word does for us personally. God restores the soul. God's word makes wise the simple. God's word gives joy to the heart. God's word gives light to the eyes. We should not put trust in the words of men or put any hope in them alone. For God's promises are man's only solid and sure source of strength and wisdom. The contrast is clear. Flowers fall, grass withers, but God's word will stand. What God promises will happen. We must be prepared to answer the call of God for his work, for us, and the way to do that is by knowing his word and having it inside of us. Are you in God's word? Are we in it daily? Today is March 1st. It's the first day of of a new month. There's something that I do, regardless of what, a, what other reading or devotional um, that, I, that I am in or however I'm reading through God's word at the time. Additionally, I will read a chapter of Proverbs during the months that have 31 days in them. Makes it easy. A chapter a day keeps the devil away. It's easy. You can do it. I encourage you, I challenge you to take today, read Proverbs chapter 1 is a start to the journey of getting into God's word if you not, are not already there. There's a theme verse in chapter one that helps you understand all the Proverbs. You say, there's a theme verse for Proverbs? Isn't it kind of all over the place? Proverbs chapter one, verse seven uh, is the theme verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Only a fool despises wisdom and instruction. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Whom did Jesus Jesus say would be blessed? Those who hear the word of God and observe it. 
But we say we are reluctant to bear witness to the power of God because we feel unprepared. We've got our own fears. We've got our own guilt. There's so much we haven't worked out yet. There's always a reason or an excuse. Who am I to say God's word to to anybody? We don't trust our voices very much. But as usual, if we think along those lines, we've gotten it all backwards. You never get ready to lift up the word to your world on your own. You just do it. Get your Nike shoes on and make it so. The word, it stands. It will be fulfilled. The less we feel ready to respond to the call, the more room there is for God to work in us and through us. We just have to be available. We have to be ready. Get ready for more on that idea in the weeks ahead. The plot of heathen kings in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 7. The atheist telling you the faith in God you can't see is childish or doesn't make sense. The government leader that mocks God in 2020. None of their words will stand, but the Lord's word will. What is our commitment to the call? In our time of need, be it affliction or attack, we must dwell in the comfort of God the comfort that God provides to those who belong to him in the faith, knowing that God has a plan in all circumstances, for he is in control of all things. Unfortunately, or ultimately, his plan is for all men to come to know him. Ultimately, that's what his plan is, to come to know him as Lord and Savior, to come to know him and to receive the glory that he is due through our obedience, which is our worship, so that God may use us as his vessels to proclaim the word of God, Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and that unshakable foundation, which stands forever. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6 says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. We need to hear a word from the Lord. We need to hear a word from the Lord. He is calling us. He calls us through his word. He calls us as he speaks to us. We are often too loud, though, to notice or too distracted to notice, to pay attention. Our commitment to the call of God is to be ready. Paul gives us this challenge in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 17. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This verse gives us the the sentiment of carpe diem, seize the day. Or as a friend of mine who just recently um, published an album uh, would describe it as swing wide. Seize the day. Our days are short and they're evil. God is making a call on us. And that call is to live and to preach God's word. We must do this daily by dwelling with him, being the word, being in the word of God. For only then will we be ready, will we see and hear his call and be able to respond. When we are at a loss for words, God gives us words that we need. We are made to more than survive. We are made to thrive in Christ. We can do that by having the power of his word in us. We can. Jesus said in Matthew chapter four, verse four, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.